Hey, this episode is part of a Kids Listen Sweep celebrating Women's History Month. We encourage you to check out all of the great shows making content for this month's sweeps, but specifically we want to mention two. The first is Time Storm, which is a full cast fiction podcast about twins who travel in time to preserve Puerto Rico's true history. The Ventura twins visit three continents across the span of five centuries, meeting people who have left their mark on Puerto Rican heritage. In the 21st century, the twins navigate school, friendship, and family while keeping their time-traveling quests a secret. And their Women's History Month release is actually a sampler of season one, so it's a great way to jump in. Also, our friends at Girl Tales have created Rapunzel, which is their reimagining of the classic fairy tale. With a curly, coarse, courageous twist, this time Rapunzel goes on an adventure, making a long-lasting friendship and using her smarts and black girl magic to become her own hero. Time Storm and Girl Tales! Hello, my name is Mick Sullivan and welcome to The Past and the Curious. Uh, Listen, we've got a really fun social media project that we're going to be rolling out in the next few weeks with the help of our friend and artist, Brianna Jacoby. So keep your eyes peeled. We've actually created some illustrations of 16 stories from the show, and we will be sharing those with the world. And also they will take the form of a zine slash booklet slash catalog thing that any and all of our Patreon sponsors will get a free copy of. So now's a really good time to join over there. The first story you're going to hear today is about Amelia Bloomer's preferred article of clothing, which did a lot to advance the cause of women's suffrage. This year, of course, marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which was a big step towards all Americans earning the right to vote. This episode also features a story written and told by Melinda Beck. Melinda works with me at the Fraser History Museum in Louisville and has thoroughly researched and created a performance about the incredible turn-of-the-century bicyclist Tilly Anderson. The performance can be seen live at special times during the run of the exhibit, which is called What is a Vote Worth? Suffrage Then and Now. There's a lot this story is about. And it certainly doesn't cover everything, but in a nutshell, it's a tale of votes, bikes, and bloomers, which wasn't a chant from the time period, but might as well have been. In the late 19th century, which is a confusing way to say the 1800s, many women were fed up with certain aspects of their lives. Yes, the size and lack of comfort in their clothes was frustrating, But ladies were also longing for freedom to move about their cities rather than be stuck at home. And they wanted to vote. Can you believe that they couldn't? Amelia Bloomer was one such suffragist, which is a confusing way to say that she worked to get women the right to vote. Her name is also synonymous with an article of clothing. We think of it as underwear today. To be fair, Amelia didn't invent bloomers. She just knew a good idea when she wore one. It was another uncomfortably clad lady named Elizabeth Smith Miller who made them a reality. Like many other women, Elizabeth had spent years in a dress that seemed as big as a church bell and nearly as heavy. At the time, people would have told an unsatisfied upstart like Elizabeth that the constricting clothes she was expected to wear were no big deal. A woman's work at the time was supposedly much less demanding than a man's. Therefore, what need would she have for a silly indulgence like mere comfort? But Elizabeth was not buying it, for she was a vestment visionary. 
Some would call her crazy, but she longed for the simple pleasures of sitting down without eclipsing behind a giant upturned hoop skirt. And it was a beautiful dream of hers to bend over with ease to grab something off of the floor, or even walk through a living room without leaving everything there scattered on the ground like a bunch of dead bowling pins. Perhaps most of all, she just wanted to breathe. But these were things her clothes didn't really allow for. So she scrapped the suffocating corset and birdcage-like structure under her skirt, tossed the mess of fabric into the closet, and set to work with scissors and thread, inspired by the memory of something that she had seen on a trip across the ocean. She finished one fateful day in 1851 and stepped out her door and into the free air, wearing billowy white leg coverings that reached her ankles, and covering these long underwear-like leggings was a skirt that broke well below her knee. She said no to the dress. At the time, the outfit was most often referred to as pantalettes, which were the leg coverings, and tunic, which was the skirt. Imagine people's shock and disgust when she crossed the yard and not a single twig got stuck in her new outfit. Now, Elizabeth didn't even knock over any tables in her living room. How undignified! Perhaps most shocking of all, it didn't take her an hour or more to cinch her corset breathtakingly tight and install all of the necessary parts that would provide the poof underneath. What on earth would she do with all of the time she saved by wearing something so simple? Something devilish, no doubt. The criticisms rolled off of Elizabeth like water off of a beaver fur swimsuit, because she had the courage to wear a skirt with sensible pantaloons as underwear. If there had been cars, they would have wrecked as she strolled by. If there had been cameras, the paparazzi would have tumbled over one another for the perfect snap. On the whole, the 1850s were pretty free from these modern inventions, though, and the only thing there was to spread the shocking word of her costume was, well, the written word. Some people loved the outfit, but plenty of people simply couldn't handle it. Those detractors made sure to get plenty of ink in the newspapers, talking about what an abomination the clothing combo was. If history can confirm anything, it can confirm that haters have always hated. Amelia Bloomer, on the other hand, fell head over heels for the outfit that broke just above her ankles. And luckily, Amelia had her own really popular newspaper, called The Lily. The newspaper had begun when she and a group of her friends had the idea to start a publication for women dedicated to promoting the things that they truly believed in. Keeping a paper going wasn't one of those things for the other ladies, because they didn't follow through, quitting to leave Amelia high and dry and alone to do the job. She could have quit too, no one would have really known, but Amelia resolved not to walk away, so she became the editor and pretty much everything else. The Lily ran articles mostly about two original guiding principles. The first was temperance. The newspaper hated alcohol. The other focus of the paper was on women's rights. Amelia made the argument that a growing set of laws were made that affected every woman in America, and not a single one of these women had any say in the matter. This was completely unfair. Women couldn't vote, they couldn't hold office, and they couldn't even have much control over their own lives. For its first few years, Amelia published the paper to a subscription audience of around 400 women and men. Then she got involved in dress reform. It happened when a few notable friends saw the fashion-forward, society-angering pantalette and tunic combo, and they ditched their dresses too. One of those dress ditchers was Amelia's friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. 
and donning the outfit, she paid a visit to her pal, and as soon as Amelia saw it, she was smitten. And she knew that others would be too, and she bet that the lily was a great way to spread the word. The paper published descriptions of the pantalettes and depictions of the tunic. Amelia waxed poetic on the many freedoms it would give women, inside the home and out, and she even printed instructions for making your own set. This wasn't a time period where you could head to the store and easily purchase fitted clothing in your size, so most people took a DIY approach and could sew their own underwear and outerwear. Bolstered by people's rabid interest in the radical new clothing, the paper subscription ballooned to nearly 4,000 names. Meanwhile, the ladies in the daring new outfits were strolling through the dirty streets of towns all over the country, scaring the establishment with the threat of easy movement, dirt-free hemlines, and healthy, unsquished internal organs. One big question still lingered on everyone's minds, though. What do we call this outfit? Though somewhat descriptive, pantalet and tunic combo had about the same amount of sparkle as a muddy chunk of coal. Because so many people learned about it through her newspaper, the outrageous ensemble began to be called the Bloomer costume. And eventually, Bloomers became the name for the long pants worn underneath the skirt. For several years, the Bloomer costume was a ferocious fashion trend, empowering women all over the country. Eventually, Amelia herself gave up on the garments, though she actually grew tired of all the controversy they created. People just wanted to talk about clothes rather than the real issues, which was women's rights. The Bloomer costume may have been a little bit ahead of its time, but a few decades later, there was a resurgence. In the 1890s, America was dominated by a new fad. Everyone wanted to be riding bicycles, and no longer did people have to struggle to climb aboard one of those huge wheeled monstrosities called the penny farthing. There was a new kind of bike called the safety bicycle, and it closely resembles the bike that you might ride around your neighborhood today. Women constantly stuck at home adopted this bike as their own, so much so that one was often called a lady's bike. Big billowy dresses yet again caused a problem. All that fabric flying around could get stuck in the gears or spinning tires. A wrong move and the rider could be grated like cheese or sent flying up and tumbling to the ground below. The solution was simple. The bloomer costume. With its separate underwear and covered legs, and skirt, it allowed a rider to straddle the seat and conquer the world. Or at least one city. After decades of struggle and fight, the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920. As a result, some women, though not all women, finally had the right to vote. It would take decades more before people were allowed to vote without discrimination. Native Americans were not able to vote until 1924, and Chinese American citizens, not until 1943. And it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that all American citizens were granted the right to vote and protected in doing so. Susan B. Anthony, perhaps the most famous suffragist in America, said women earning the right had a lot to do with bicycles. Let me tell you what I think of bicycles. I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. The picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. It was a symbol of self-reliance and resistance for women of the time. 
and it wouldn't have been possible, or at least safe, without bloomers. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Hey, everybody. It's Mick. And for the first time in like a year and a half, no one sent a You Have 30 Seconds. So uh, I'm just going to use this 30 seconds to tell you that you should do it now. Now's a perfect time. All you got to do is get a smartphone or your parents phone or whatever uh, and record it. A voice memo. It's super easy. There's probably an app on there already. And you email it to me at hello at the past and the curious dot com. I can't wait to hear what you're excited about. It just has to be from the past, okay? It's a history show. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. <gasps> quiz time already? Well, if you say so, uh, let me find my notes. Oh, question number one. Bessie Coleman was the first African-American woman to hold a license for what type of vehicle? We've featured her in a story in a past episode, so if you have heard it and you remember it, you might recall that she was the first to have a license to pilot an airplane. At the time, in 1921, she had to travel to France in order to get this license because no flight schools in America would allow her as an African-American and Cherokee heritage woman. In 1938, another woman, Willa Brown, who was from my home state of Kentucky, became the first African-American woman to earn a license from a flight school in the United States. Question number two. In 1909, Alice Hoyer Ramsey and three of her friends became the first women to drive an automobile all the way across the country from New York City to San Francisco. How long do you think it took them? For 59 days, the ladies traveled across the continent, garnering attention, attracting cheering fans, and even earning the sponsorship for their car of choice, a Maxwell runabout. 
Alice was the only actual driver, so she drove all of the 3,600 miles, and only 152 miles of that journey was done on paved roads. Whenever they got lost, they would follow telephone poles. They figured the poles that had more wires on them would lead to larger towns. It worked, and Alice enjoyed the experience of driving across the country so much that she did it again. In fact, she did it again 30 times. All right, third and final question. Annie Londonderry was a bicycling pioneer and one of the first athletes to earn a professional sponsorship when, in 1894, she rode her bike all the way around the globe. Oceans not included, obviously. She was actually born Annie Kopchevsky in Latvia, but she took the name Londonderry from her first sponsor. Can you guess what they sold? Annie earned many sponsors from the publicity of her remarkable journey, including bicycles, tires, and perfumes. But her first sponsor was the one that had the biggest sign, which she attached to her bike, the Londonderry Lithia Spring Water Company. Though she died in relative obscurity in 1947, she was far ahead of her time, and not just what she accomplished, but also her daring and confident approach to life. She was actually featured in the New York Times Overlooked Obituaries in 2019. There are plenty of ways to go fast today, but for most of the 1800s, if you had a need for speed, a horse was pretty much your only option. Granted, you could hop on a train, but they only went where the tracks would let them go, so you were stuck atop a horse, or riding the rail, until the bicycle came along. Bicycles were a game changer, and quickly sped into the hearts and minds of the American public, transforming society, city landscapes, even popular music. When bicycles were first brought over from England, they weren't altogether practical. Also, they were super expensive. If you could afford to buy one and learn to ride it, you could um, show it off to your friends. Most roads weren't paved yet, so there weren't a lot of options. But despite initial limitations of place, bicycles brought an unforeseen kind of freedom. They were so new that there weren't really any social rules around how to ride or who could ride. This would set the stage for a new kind of athlete and a new kind of woman at the turn of the century. Enter Tilly Anderson. A teenager from Sweden, she immigrated to Chicago, Illinois. Her father had passed away when she was young, leaving the family to try to earn money for themselves. But their move to the U.S. seemed promising and held more opportunity. Tilly took a job in a tailor shop, repairing and washing customers' clothes. Watching out the shop window one day in 1893, Tilly was amazed to see a bicycle whiz by on the street. In an instant, she knew she had to have one. She knew that she too could be a scorcher, someone who rides really, really fast. Tilly saved her money for two years just to buy her own bicycle. And her timing couldn't have been better. The same summer she bought her bike, she heard about another opportunity. Nearby, a century race was being held, a total of 100 miles. Now, Tilly already got up at 5 a.m. just to ride her bike before work, and then she rode another 20 to 40 miles after work just for fun. She figured 100 miles wasn't that much more than what she was doing already, so she thought she could make a great time of the race. As a rookie, she rode against both men and women and won women's second place. 
This really put some wind in Tilly's sails. At the time, women weren't allowed to have their own property or money. There were very strict rules about how to behave in society. Now, thanks to the pedals of a bike, women could leave their house without a chaperone to tell them what to do. A lady could ride to town, ride to the park, ride to work, all on her own. It was liberating for women to ride bikes. Remember what Susan B. Anthony said? You can see why Tilly was excited. Not satisfied with a simple ride in the park, though, she entered a new kind of race. Six-day races were developed by a man named H.O. Messier. An entertainer from France, he had witnessed firsthand women's scorchers and realized they could really attract a crowd. He invited some of the best racers in the Midwest, plus a few qualifying Chicago locals, to compete in a women's race built on a track of his own design. Called velodromes, these steeply banked, short, oval-shaped tracks could send riders at speeds that averaged 20 to 25, even 30 miles an hour if they pushed hard enough. The races were two hours a day for five days, plus a big Saturday night finale to see who could win an entire week's worth of racing. And with the stands seating between 3,000 and 10,000 people in some cities, you can imagine the thundering cheers the winner would receive after that kind of challenge. The steep inclines of the track created some problems. Tilly was new to this style of racing, and it took her more than two days and a lot of falls to actually stay upright. Messier considered sending her home. She could have hurt herself or someone else. During the training leading up to the race, her manager, Phil, begged Messier to give her one more shot. It's a good thing he did, because once she got the hang of it, she was so fast that a man watching her practice rounds offered her $1,000 to throw the race. That's right, lose on purpose. He had placed a bet on another racer and realized he was going to lose a lot of cash if, make that when, Tilly won. Laughable. Tilly told him it was her first race and she intended to win if she could. And anyway, she thought more of winning than she did of his money. The winner's purse, by comparison, was $200. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Belladrome, where only one winner will prove victorious. Who will it be? She's graceful and kind, and known as the queen of the wheel. You know her and love her from her high wheel antics. It's Helen! Representing England, wearing the Union Jack, even though she's really just from Pittsburgh. She'll keep a stiff upper lip while saving the queen with her big wheel bike. Make welcome, May! Or maybe it will be the woman in the long white robe. Wait, no, she shed it to reveal a red satin suit. Yes, her name is Dottie, but you know her as Redbird, and this Redbird is ready to fly. Or could it be Lizzie Glaw? It's a long way from her native Germany, but she'd ride a bike all the way back home if she could. Why, just recently, she rode 100 miles to beat none other than our last contestant. And this last contestant may have spent the week falling on the ground, but it's out of her Swedish system now, and she's ready to make the rounds. It's Tilly the Terrible Swede Anderson! Ladies and gentlemen, these are the big five of your bicycle races. 
The races were so novel, so unusual, and so daring that the crowds grew every single day. This was the fastest the audience had ever seen another human being go. Some audience members, unfortunately, were excited at the prospect of an accident occurring. This was taken account for in the rules. If a racer fell, she had five laps to get back on her bike and re-enter the race to stay qualified. The others were going extremely fast, so this only gave her about 45 seconds. Luckily, Phil, her manager, was always at the ready to help replace Tilly's bike or fix what was needed. Anytime there was a fall, the other riders, knowing the five-lap rule, burst into a sprint trying to make the five laps before the fallen rider would remount. This raised the intensity level on the track and in the stands. Falls or no falls, Tilly was setting new records and the audience would burst into cheers every time. The Chicago Marine Band, yeah, by the way, there's an orchestra pit in the middle, would burst into the Swedish national anthem. Everyone, the crowd, trainers, the reporters, could see she was a force to be reckoned with. By the time Saturday arrived, the race was neck and neck. The cycliens, as they were called, were pretty evenly matched, but only one woman would be a winner by the end of the night. The paper the next morning read, Audiences around the track quit mopping their sweat to yell. Everybody surged a bit closer to the track. Women, numbers of them with children and even babies, spoke of discomfort, but the men and boys had lost all faculties but sight and voice. The headline? Tilly wins by a lap! In some ways, crossing the finish line first didn't matter terribly much. All of the women had performed so well and garnered such admiration that each was sponsored by a cycling company. Tilly was given money by the Excelsior Manufacturing Company, whose bicycle model was called the Thistle. Ironically, they also manufactured sewing machines. The Thistle served as her steed of steel for the rest of her career. In shop windows all over the country, you'd see signs that read, Tilly rides a thistle. Much like star athletes today, she was a household name. Phil Schoberg was a racer himself and had given up his own career to help Tilly manage hers. He was a fellow Swedish immigrant who had grown up in a bicycle manufacturing shop. He helped her train and exercise, lifting weights, boxing, and wrestling, in addition to her cycling practice. He was there every step of the way, even saving all of her newspaper clippings from every city they visited, race after race. Before long, they had fallen in love. But the race promoters didn't want their spectators to know that some of the young women were married. After all, the idea that a young athletic woman in the public eye and earning prize money could also be married? clashed with the stodgy Victorian notion that women needed to retire into private household life once she tied the knot. So many papers reported that the sweet, doting man shouting encouragement from the ring was her brother. Not everyone celebrated Tilly's big wins. The League of American Wheelmen, even after years of successful races with large crowds, refused to sanction women's racing. One time, when Tilly applied to race at a wheelman's meet, they denied her participation. But the rules never said that women couldn't apply. So when she pointed it out, they said she couldn't race because she was a professional and it wouldn't be fair to the other riders. Funnily enough, Tilly's records had never been recognized by the league because they never sanctioned women's racing. So in their eyes, she wasn't a professional. Even one reporter acknowledging her accomplishments 
said, Miss Tilly Anderson would be the only woman cyclist entitled to the championship of the United States. That is, if women could be champions. Next, she challenged male racers in head-to-head match races to prove that she was the best and that she deserved to race. Do you think any of them said yes? (laughs) They did not. For a while, women's racing brought huge crowds and tons of attention in the press. In some cities, the velodromes couldn't hold the number of people who wanted to watch, so they organized training runs for Tilly in the streets, so onlookers could see for themselves just how fast she really was. People climbed telephone poles and stood on carriages just to catch a glimpse as she whizzed by. But people like new stuff, and despite the amazing abilities of these women, the thrill started to fade. Ticket sales lagged, so to resolve this, Messier and his team had the idea to host not just a U.S. championship, but a world's championship. There were many incredible European racers, but the one that captured everyone's attention was a French woman, and serious record-breaker in her own right. Could she beat the American Big Five? Her first chance was in Minneapolis, and she had the papers buzzing. Everyone was in love with this mysterious, coquettish racer. Who was she? What was she like? Papers even went as far as to invent elaborate origin stories for her. She was a a poor shepherdess. No, she was French royalty. The day of the race arrived, and the racers assembled on the track to meet Lisette. The Big Five were not impressed. Although Lisette had a learning curve when it came to the American style, she was a fierce competitor and very capable speedster. Not fierce enough to beat Tilly, though. Tilly won every single day that week. By the time women's racing was in its fifth year, Messier needed a bigger boost than Lisette to get the crowds returning. The press was dwindling. He featured a hot new invention. Motorcycles! To set the pace in races. He even had sideshows in the ring, the kind you'd see at the circus. But this wasn't enough. In 1902, women's cycling was becoming eclipsed by other things, the rise of baseball, the automobile, and finally, two of the top racers passed away, one from injuries in a race. This dampened an era of some of the most incredible athletic feats humans had ever dreamt of. After women's cycling had run its course, Tilly didn't stop working. She found a career as a masseuse, and later built a small cabin in the Minnesota countryside. She knew that she would always be Tilly the Terrible Swede, the women's cycling world champion. Oh, and her family still maintains the cabin to this day, where her thistle is mounted on the wall. Thanks, Melinda. And if you ever find yourself, or at least in the next year, find yourself in the neighborhood of Louisville, Kentucky, you should come visit the Fraser History Museum and see the exhibit, What is a Vote Worth? There's more information at frasermuseum.org. And that's it. Episode 41 is a wrap. Thank you for listening. Remember to check out our podcast pals, Time Storm and Girl Tales, as well as Really, all of our kids listen friends who have participated and are celebrating Women's History Month this month. Also, thanks to those of you, you know who you are, those of you who joined for the Meat Shower live reading on Facebook Live. That was really, really fun. And if you missed it, it's archived on the Facebook page. So go watch it. And the book is available at earlyworkspress.org.com.com, earlyworkspress.com. 
And I need to thank some Patreon sponsors with some shout outs. Peter, 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 Max, 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 Samantha, 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 Peter, Max, Samantha Berkey, Peter, Max, Samantha Berkey. I am so glad you are out there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. And thanks. Just thanks. And thanks to your folks, too. Yeah. And those of you who are not Peter, Max, Samantha Berkey or their folks. Well, thank you, too. Anyway, we love you out there. If you are interested in joining our Patreon team, now is a great time because we have been working on a booklet or zine or catalog, whatever you want to call it, with uh, an artist named Brianna Jacoby for quite some time now. And it's very, very close to being done. I actually met Brianna when I just so happened to be seated at her table at an event at Bellarmine University where we both went to school. Many years apart, mind you. She's in Boston now, and it was awesome because she is both a great person and an incredible artist who creates art that I happen to really, really, really like. It speaks to me. We picked 16 people featured on the show, and she has created original artworks inspired by their stories. It's been super fun to work on, and it's also been fun to work with her. I can't wait to share it. All of the images will make their way to our Instagram and other social media pages. Physical copies of this zine, or whatever you want to call it, will be a Patreon patron exclusive. The info is up on our website. It's thepastandthecurious.com. That's where you'll find stuff about Patreon and other things. Yeah! Sorry about that. Thanks. As always, this was a great pleasure. Be nice to people. Wash your hands. And, uh... From this episode, perhaps remember that people can change the world. Amelia Bloomer did it with a pair of underpants. At work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription that's a mouthful why did i write that (laughs) okay (laughs) can you say motorcycles again